church as you will uh, remain standing as we uh, prepare to read God's word this morning. We are going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the second half there, verses 17 through 34. Let us hear the word of the Lord together. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you, not, or do you despise the church of God and, the, and, and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night, before, the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks... He broke and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that you may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. You may be seated. What makes the community of Christ, what makes this gathering here this morning different? What makes it distinct? Just take a second, give it some thought. What makes us different? What is it that should mark us as distinct from, say, other religions or religious gatherings that may be happening in this very town this morning. I think when we examine the New Testament, we'd find the answer to be an incredibly short answer. And if you were in Sunday school this morning, you know what that answer is. I mentioned it then. Love. Love. In a world that has so overwhelmingly distorted and redefined and egregiously misrepresented um, what love is, some of you might find my answer 
to that question a bit surprising, especially as one who treasures the confessional heritage of our prized faith. But Jesus is clear in his final instructions to his disciples prior to taking that Lord's table with them in, gospel of, in the Gospel of John, that it's love that sets them apart. You will remember, if you were, and we won't go there, you can certainly flip there if you want to, but chapter 12 in the Gospel of John, after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus turns the remainder of his time and attention in that final week leading up to his, uh, his trial and his crucifixion. He, rem- he gives the remainder of his time to just focusing on teaching and loving and caring for his disciples who would carry on his mission after that day. He wanted to comfort them. He wanted to instruct them about what it means to be this new community. And so John sets the intimate setting really well for us when you think about what he gives us in his prized gospel. They're in a home, probably an upper room, preparing to share a meal together. No doubt for Jesus, the week was probably running at a feverish pace as he knew what was coming. And he knew what was about to unfold. And so John, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, wants us to slow down that week a bit, look at the details of the moment, and help the reader understand and bring us closer to the proximity of those last hours of Jesus with his disciples. And in John 13, Jesus demonstrates for his disciples in visible display what sacrificial love for his disciples looks like. And it's an intimate, intimate act. He washes their feet. You know that Peter recoiled initially at the idea, found it offensive, and said it should not happen. But it was clear that in this picture that Jesus tells and how he rebukes Peter, says you will have no part of me if you do not let me wash your feet. He's giving a picture, isn't he, of substitutionary and sacrificial love that removes the stain of what? Guilt and sin that Peter needed to happen so much in his life like we all do. And though it was not known for the disciples at that moment of time, it would mark for them something um, profound as they would look back and they would think about what that moment meant to the carrying on of Jesus' mission after his death, after his resurrection, burial and resurrection. And then he leaves them with this powerful thought after he finishes washing their feet. And it's this, that God will be glorified in all that was about to pass no matter how much heartbreak it's going to cause, no matter how many questions it's going to cause, it's going, God will go get all of the glory, even among this new fledgling community that will probably scatter all around, and he will get the glory as they do one thing. They love one another. The world will know you by your love for one another. It's the most, one of the most intimate and solemn moments that we have in the scriptures for us. That their love for one another, Jesus says, will be the defining mark that will testify to the love of Christ to the world. And as the church understands the centrality of our mission today and constantly brings us back to that mission, and as we think about our place in the world, even in light of those who were in Sunday school this morning, our place in the world, we talked about the love of our neighbor, the law of love, right? We talked about that this morning, and you can go back and, 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 and discuss that later. But we must understand then that love is the sacramental is at the, is at the sacramental center of what it means to be Christian. That one's love for God 
savoring and knowing Jesus as Savior King, to, to love one another, that is loving the church and careful not to divide the church on um, not things that are not central to our mission, and to bring the love of Christ visible to the world. And we would do that. We would do that, obviously, by proclaiming the gospel. But one of the ways Jesus would have us do it would be by applying those signs and seals we have in Scripture of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are visible signs, not only to each other, to remind each other, but they are visible signs to the world as we love them. And we seek their good. And we seek their flourishing. Even our enemies, as we talked about again this morning in Sunday school. And I believe the reformers were united in this idea. You, if you know anything about Reformation history, you know that the marks of they, they would all, of course, they all kind of said it differently, but the marks of the true church were what? Preaching the gospel, disciplining the church, and the ordinances, the, the sacraments. And, and we know that if you break those things down, what, are we, what is it they are ultimately saying? If you preach the gospel, you're preaching to the love of God to sinners. And if you discipline the church, you're preaching love of God to the church. And if you hold out proper participation in those wonderful gifts of the, of the sacraments and ordinances to us, we are missionally displaying the love of God to the world. That's why we do this. And I said this a few weeks ago, that when we come here together, we may, no one may be here to see what we're doing and participating in here this morning, but we're still making a statement to the world of what is and who is the Lord of life. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two sac sacraments and ordinances that Jesus left with his church, which both point to the love of God for sinners. Baptism, for us, we Baptists and Christians everywhere believe it, it's, it's the one becoming many. It's not just about me anymore. I'm now being included in the redeemed people, this new community of Christ. And the supper is the many becoming one that we display the love of God in the way that we celebrate regularly, as we do here each week, the profound unity and the love that has been made visible through the, to the world through the church. And so this is the issue Paul is raising in this portion of his letter to the Corinthians. He's dealing with a misunderstanding, a misrepresentation of Christ and the way that they're celebrating the Lord's Supper and, frankly, how they're dismissing the divisions that are in the church and they're making light of those things. And by, and by virtue, what are they doing? They're making a mockery of the gospel. They're making a mockery of the love of God. And so the sermon this morning, the main idea that we're going to flesh out this morning is the Lord's Supper is a visible seal given to the church to display to the world the matchless love of God for sinners, and it reminds us of our most sacred responsibilities to one another, love. When we do this well, and we do this right, and we do this with the right heart, we do this with the right examination, this is exactly the fruit of it that should happen. It should produce more love for us. And love for one another, and certainly more love for God and more love for our neighbor. So some context of what's happening in this text might be helpful for us as we think through what Paul's dealing with in this and what he's addressing with. And we need to look back at maybe some common practices that are kind of unfolding for um, they're kind of in Paul's day there among those early churches. So these local assemblies 
you might use the word ecclesias, would gather weekly for prayer and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They would, they would, they would come together, and, um, and though they didn't have necessarily the New Testament in any collected, canonized way at that point, they would, they, the, the, the distinctive Jewish culture had this wonderful thing called the oral tradition. So their leaders would come up, and they would re- remind the people of, number one, God's faithfulness to them, and, the letter, and they would do this by maybe perhaps they had had interaction with some of the other letters that Paul had written or the other apostles had written. But it also would be reminded of the witness of Jesus as they would think back through the gospel and all that, all the four gospels. This was oral tradition that was permeating the church throughout these where before the, the whole collected canon of the, of the New Testament was uh, put together. And all of this would then return and they would then go to the Old Testament text, the text that they did have. And they would read it with new eyes, eyes wide open to the promises of Christ that are now more clear to them than they were before now that they know who Jesus is. And so they would gather, and I would assume, weekly for remembrance meals in light of that, and, and the same pattern of the Last Supper that we see here. They would begin the institution of the table with the bread. Some leader would probably get up, and they would just announce that this is the body of Christ, broken for sinners like you and me. And then they would can carry on with their meal and fellowship together. And then sometime later, a leader would come up again, and they would share about the cup, the cup of Christ, this cup of wine that pointed them to the shed blood of Christ that was spilled for them to pay for the penalty for their sin. And so this was a common practice and for most of the churches in those first, say, couple hundred years of the church um, until later on when it was recognized more as a, of a, a valid religion, perhaps under Constantine and whatnot. And, and it pointed, and these practices, um, of course, got more formalized. As the church got on, it got more and more formalized, and it was less more communal like we're discussing here and became more because the churches would grow and it was you know there were some pragmatics i'm sure that got involved in that and it and, and what what paul is is trying to show us here in this text is that this was a common practice among the churches so they would remember what christ had accomplished for them and so he's this is the background of everything that's going on with paul and so as we think about this common idea, this common occurrence that was going on in public worship with the Christians, and particularly even here in the Corinthian church, um, now we understand why this is such a big deal to Paul and why he had to address it. Because it, if anything, by the fact that they weren't doing it well, they were corrupting the visibility of the gospel. They were corrupting the visibility of the gospel to the world. They were corrupting the visibility of the gospel to their own brothers and sisters in the church because they were showing partiality to one another. They would, they would make these distinctions between these haves and these have-nots. Let's get into the text for a moment. So first thing Paul does here in verses 1 through 20, I'm sorry, verses 17 through 22, is he's confronting this scandalous reality of what's happening with the, within this family of God there. And just kind of pick, just cherry pick a few things here. The following instructions, I don't commend you, right? You're worse off for a meeting than you are better. Now that's a pretty striking statement. Paul is in effect saying your gatherings are worthless and you shouldn't even really meet. Maybe I'm being a little bit hyperbolic there. That's okay. But imagine that assessment being made of our church. That our church, could you imagine our church's gathering doing more harm than it does good? That's what Paul is saying here. I'm willing to bet there are many churches in the world across the globe who could be assessed in this way. They're defined more by their earthly status, their passions, their desires, or even their cultural distinctives than their heavenly status. 
Now, it's not wrong for a church to imbibe what we might be more common to the local culture here. That's not what we're getting at here. That's not, not Paul's concern here. No, no, no doubt that every local expression, every local ecclesia would, um, across the global church, it, it would, will, will imbibe some of its you know, surrounding culture, to be sure. But Paul's concern is the divisions in the church that have nothing to do with their doctrine, they have really nothing to do with their common culture, but with the practice of care and concern that believers should have for one another in their earthly affairs. See, our culture and our station in life should never be used as an excuse to ignore the unity that is so precious to the gospel community called the church. Let me say that again. Our culture and our station in society should never be used as an excuse to ignore the preciousness of the unity that is supposed to be imbibed in this new gospel community called the church. What's going on here? Well, I'm going to try to paint a picture for you. In this period of church history, most churches meet, met in the evenings for the Lord's Day. Now, there's some, there's some debate about whether or not this was an addition to a Sunday morning. We don't really know. Um, the working class probably were not able to go to Sunday morning Lord's Day worship because they were slaves in the institution. So sometimes Sunday evenings all the time they had. So probably the bigger of the, uh, uh, of the meetings was their Sunday evening. If they did have to, their Sunday evening. But the Sunday evening would also be the time when they would have this meal, and it would be a remembrance meal of that last supper. And again, it's not entirely clear, if, again, if this is an addition to the Lord's Day morning or not. We must keep some of that open-handed in terms of our evaluation. Um, but what's important here for our understanding of this text, brothers and sisters, is that Paul's words is that what was most common for the churches was to meet in the homes of the wealthier members. And because they were large enough for them to embody, the, you know, to, to gather the whole church to meet and enjoy the Lord's table each week, and, and, and this, this one reason right here, by the way, um, is one of the reasons why we, are, we believe here that we want to take the Lord's Supper often, i.e. weekly, because we believe it's probably the practice of the local church back in the first century or so. Okay? It's a side note. But the typical layout of this home would be, in this period, that it would be this large atrium that you'd walk into, and then an even larger, more elegant dining room called a trichelium. I think I'm saying that right. And each of the families would bring their own meal, though. Now, don't think potluck here. They weren't sharing their meals. They were just bringing their own meal. And you can imagine, like, have you ever come to a, like, we have a pastor's luncheon that I go to, and there's, like, some of us come in there, they got our tuna, tuna fish sandwiches, and then some of the pastors come in, and they bought, like, really nice meals from some restaurant. Like, okay, that's kind of what's happening here. No one's sharing meals with each other at these pastor's gatherings. I can assure you of that. All right? Because, like, you know. But this is kind of what's happening here. They're coming in, they're bringing their own meals, and they are, but, but it's such a distinction that some are like feasting with this grandiose kind of way, and some are just struggling to even have food there to feed their families. At least that's what it seems to be here from this text. Again, not a potluck, not a shared meal. Each family was responsible for bringing their own meal to this weekly feast. And so what was apparently happening was the more affluent people would be seated in the nice, elegant dining room, and the less affluent common members were more often seated at the overflow in the atrium and less stylish room, probably because they were still working and they were probably late to, always late coming to church. The, the, the affluent people probably started their, you know, um, their festivities a little earlier than them because they had the ability to do so. And so they would come, and by the time the common class, the poor people in your group that were probably having to work that day um, for their masters or wherever they were, 
by the time they were showing up, man, the excesses of their feasting had already taken shape. They were full. And, and they were joyful. And, and, and Paul says probably even drunk. And maybe even using the, the line of the Lord for some of this. And so most of the wealthy members had eaten their fill. Some were even, again, just excessively, had, had just gotten to the extreme ex- excess. And those other members were, were not included in some capacity. It was quite a spectacle for Paul and quite an issue that Paul wants to deal with. See, most commentaries believe that some of the, it was actually some of the wealthier members who brought this to his attention. It probably wasn't the common class because the common class, this was, this was, this was norm for them. They were always left out of everything. And so they didn't want to speak up because the culture around them says, well, I don't have a right to speak up. But it was probably some of the wealthier members who are going, something's not right here. And so they're bringing it to Paul's attention. Because for them, they would look at this Christian gathering, and it didn't look Christian at all, did it? It looks like it was just a big festival, just like any other pagan religious festival around them. And the people who had, the haves had, and the have-nots did not have. And that should, that should not that does not reflect the gospel at all in any way. Um, some of the church were concerned about this, and they, they brought it to Paul. It's a very vivid picture if you start thinking about it. And here's what Paul's assessment of it is. I believe it. I believe this is true. And, and, and it's, and it's got to be dealt with. And that there's significant gospel implications when it doesn't, if it goes unaddressed. What was being displayed from Paul's perspective and and from our perspective is that it was antithetical to the gospel. It was antithetical to the love of Jesus commanded disciples to live in. I mean, think about James 2, 1 through 3. I mean, it's the same idea that we see there in that text, right? Let me see if I can find it for us real quick. I didn't mark it, so be patient with me. He's talking this same situation. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing is also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into courts, are they not the ones who blaspheme the the honorable name by which you were called? We need to stop right there. So, so clearly this is an issue that's running through the churches, and, and particularly here in Corinth. And so the result of it is some, some, probably some bitterness and, uh, of this mistreatment and this, this mischaracterization um, of what it means to be the community of Christ. I mean, even if, even if the poor did not necessarily speak up for themselves, you can imagine, I mean, many of us would probably go, what's this all about? Why is, this, why, is this such, why, are they, why is their experience so much different than our experience? As I mentioned before, they probably didn't speak up for themselves, but, but we can imagine that they would be frustrated, perhaps bitter, at least silently. 
And perhaps the, the more affluent in this church justified their actions as they saw it. Why? Because, well, it's going to be inevitable that there's going to be divisions when you have people who with some, so much divergent background. You know, you can hear someone saying that. Well, there's always going to be something like that. But Christians should never, according to Paul, be indifferent or callous to the needs and circumstances that plague other precious souls, especially those of the same local fellowship. That seems untenable, doesn't it? The concern for Paul is, isn't this kind of, this kind of indifference, this kind of flaunting of your worldly comfort more akin with the worship of the Greco-Roman pagan gods that you were rescued from? See, he wants them to ask a deeper question. The question that I asked at the very beginning of this sermon, what makes you distinct? And if you're engaging in, the, in, in, this, in this table, the Lord of love would ask you, love is what makes you distinct. And if it's clear that there's some people being, 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 being neglected in the church in some capacity or being treated with partiality or treated as less than, this is a problem. See, according to Jesus, like, you're, the gospel's more than just our collective beliefs. And see, I think that's the challenge for some of us in here this morning, especially those of us who, who, who really treasure our reformed and, and confessional distinctives. We think that what makes a faithful church is just by saying, I believe X amount of list of doctrine. But according to Jesus, our beliefs give way to new living too, right? I mean, that's why he told them their love will be what displays the gospel to the world especially among the household of faith, Galatians 6, 9 through 10. I'll go to that one as well. And he says, he, he talks about how to love one another when they're in these difficult situations. And he says there, and let us grow, not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those of the household of faith. If you have such gross displays of impartiality in the church, who's not being seen in that church? Jesus. See, the Corinthian church's worship didn't look much, look a lot different from the worship of their previous lives. It certainly didn't look like anything Jesus taught his disciples to imbibe, according to Paul. And so he says clearly, I will not commend you. This is bad. Now, notice the starkness in language compared to last week when we're dealing with the issue of head coverings. I commend you, but man, we got to deal with this issue here. But then he comes into this, he goes, now this is a real issue. Because what you're doing right now is you are fundamentally uh, disparaging the, 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 the visible display of the gospel in the way that you're carrying on in your worship together. And so then what he does in the next section here is... He then digs into what has been passed on to him about the Lord's Supper. He digs again into that accepted tradition that has been passed on through him and the other apostles, and he wants to now pass it on to them afresh again. But he's not just uh, uh, sharing the, the, the truth or the doctrine of the fellowship, but he's talking about the substance of it, the lived-out reality of it. Look what he says there in verse 23. For I received... From the Lord, what I also delivered to you. Paul wants to bring them face to face with that, with that sacred night that Jesus shared with his disciples. Paul, Paul's purpose in doing so is to bring them face to face with one, with one who saves them from themselves, from their self 
interest. Isn't this what Peter would do? I mean, uh, Jesus would do over and over and over again with his disciples. I mean, you think back over there, Jesus's ministry. How many times did he confront the self-interest of the disciples? You think about the feeding of the 5,000 and they come to Jesus saying, well, Jesus, you're biting off more than you can chew here. Um, we need to take care of here. All right. The mission's important, but I don't know what you're trying to do by feeding all these people out here. And Jesus is like, man, you got yourself wrapped up too much in your own needs right now. You don't even see the bigness of what you're, being, what you're participating in. Or John and Peter's petty little concern of who would be greater in the kingdom of God. And Jesus just flat out deals with that. Or, or, or even like when he sits at the table there in John 13 and he says, one of you will betray me. What's the first response of the disciples going around the table? Is it me? They're just so wrapped up in making sure they're not the person that's causing the problems. It's like these ideas, it's these ideas that Paul is familiar with and they're running in the background of what Paul is instructing them through this, this what, what Jesus had instructed his church, to love one another. At minimum, the remembrance meal here in the church would bring us face to face with our tendency to be self-interested people, just like what we were saved out of. See, Paul's not, as I said a minute ago, is not concerned with defending or postulating some doctrine about the Lord's Supper here. We've we got to be careful with that. What he wants the Corinthians to see is the gift and blessing of participating together in the new covenant community that makes the love of God visible. They're, they're beneficiary, beneficiaries of the grace of God in Christ. His body broken. His blood spilled for them. They proclaim as they partake in this, right? And declare that they are a new community of grace. And as it were, the Corinthian church and their claim to observe the Lord's Supper, Paul says, is actually not the supper at all. It's anything but being serious about Jesus. It's anything but being serious about the love of God. It's anything but being serious about the grace that they've experienced. It's anything but being serious about their love for one another. Anything. They were guided, again, by their own self-interest and their petty differences. I mean, Paul begins this whole letter by saying, this is what we're going to address in this letter. Verses 10 through 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. But what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? No. That's the point. He wants them to understand you're dividing Christ when you live with such divisions and you're just so cavalier about your divisions in the church and your differences and your partiality towards one another. And so then reminding them in this moment about the Lord's table and about their inclusion in the blood and body of Christ, he now then spends the remainder of this chapter, we will examine by examine, asking, calling them to examine the manner of their participation in the body of Christ. There in verses 27 through 34. Whoever therefore eats the bread and, he says, and drinks of the cup of the Lord is unworthy of the of I'm um, sorry, is unworthy, in an unworthy manner, it will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does it mean that if we eat in an unworthy manner, 
that we're guilty of the body and blood of Christ. Now, sometimes you'll have some of those folks who say we want to over-scrutinize, we want to over, over-extrapolate and over-internalize all the things that we could have done wrong this week, and that way we can talk ourselves out of coming to the Lord's table. I think that's actually opposite. <laughs> Because I think what the, the church should do is when we come here, we look at the mess of our lives. We're standing in, in repentance and enjoying what Christ has done, and we come to the table. But what's happening here is he's saying you're taking an unworthy manner because he's not calling for perfection from the believers or a perfect attitude from the believers. But what he's saying is to the degree that you're despising one another, you're despising Christ. And when you despise one another, you bring dishonor to Christ. Therefore, he goes on, examine yourself and, and calls them to examine themselves by before they're eating this bread. It says there in verse 1, let a, man exa- let a person examine himself, then also to eat the bread and drink the cup. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without concerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, he who eats dis- without discerning the body there... Uh, most, and I agree with them, believe that he's talking about body there. He's talking about the church. So then when you come to the table, you should discern your role with the church and your condition in the church, your relationship with the church. You should, you should, you should if you're just here kind of haphazardly and you kind of have a kind of a, your rules and your way and your way, the highway kind of approach to the church, then you're not discerning whether or not you shouldn't even come to the church. You shouldn't even come to the table. Because you are not of one mind and one heart with the people that are here. Examine himself before eating the bread and the wine. Does our participation in supper accord with the purposes of the many becoming one? And think about how you might apply this. Rich or poor, how you might treat different classes of people that are be represented in a local congregation. Husband, a wife unresolved or lingering conflict that has not been settled and we refuse to bring it to the cross and yet we still come to the table? You and a friend? Not resolving conflict and yet still coming to the table? Do you have unforgiveness in your heart toward one another, another member of this church? Those are the kind of things that Paul's trying to prompt here. If there's something unresolved between you that would prevent you from conscientiously being able to come to the table until you've resolved that issue. And he says, discern the body, the church, the living body of Christ. You and I are the living body of Christ. And so we're thwarting the command of Jesus to love one another by when we relegate other people to second-class citizens or to live in bitter, bitter divisions with other people in our own church, sometimes in our own homes. The rich were imposing societal standards on the poor in the church and thus blurring the beauty of the gospel in this new community called the church. And again, apply this in so many other ways we can do that, right? And so... Paul then goes into verse 30 and he says, what's the result of ignoring this? Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The idea here, Paul, is saying that you're under the discipline of the Lord. Not some kind of final judgment, by the way. You're weak. In other words, you're spiritually weak. 
you have physical ailments. You're, you're, like we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And as, and as a counselor, I can tell you how many times I've sat with people who have been working through emotional and psychological things, yet it eventually affects their physical health because they're not resolving it. Some even die because they won't resolve it. That's tragic. Should never be named among us here. Should never be named among God's church. And so how are we to understand this? I mean, how many churches struggle and die because they drift away from the gospel? Not just the gospel of doctrine, but the gospel of relationships and the communal nature of the gospel. Yes, we want to preserve the purity of the gospel because it does impact that, of course. It's the ground. But in the application of the gospel to congregational life is what Paul has here in view. I mean, I serve, as you guys know, in both the National Baptist Association and the Concord Baptist Association in various leadership roles, and I'm most notably down in the Concord Baptist Association, which is our Murfreesboro one. I'm the team leader for our church planting, and therefore I'm on the executive team with all the other team leaders. And so this past Sunday night, we had our annual meeting, and we sat up there, and he said, hey, we're going to do something different. We're not going to give reports. We're just going to put all the team leaders up there, and we're going to let everyone just kind of talk and have this kind of panel discussion. I was like, okay, fair enough. Let's try that out. And um, as we're doing it, the team, the, the team leader for the renewal team that's there to help churches, you know, gain traction, he gave us some sobering data that most of us who are in ministry know very, very well, and you probably know intuitively. But here's what he said. About 20% of the current churches in the CBA, the Concord Baptist Association, will not be in existence in 20 years. And I think he's being generous on that number both in the amount of churches as well as the time it's going to take to get there. And I followed up with my report when I was asking my question. I kind of built off of his. And I said, when you think about the fact that 20 years from now, we're going to have 20% of our churches less, here's what you got to know that, what that means. The population of Rutherford County is estimated to double in 20 years or more. So what you're saying is we have about 80 churches. We're going to end up in 20 years with about 60 churches, 60 to 65 churches, ministering to not 375 to 400,000 people, but nearly 800,000 people. If you were to go and poll most Bible Belt cities about 20 years ago, you'd find that there was one Southern Baptist church for every 2,500 people in the average Bible Belt town, no matter what size it was, across our landscape. Today, in our county, we have one Southern Baptist church for every 6,000 people. And if we don't turn to tend to church health and we don't plant new churches, we're looking at one church for every 12,000 people in just 20 years. Southern Baptist church. And I know we have lots of other churches here, we, churches we love, like our Anglican friends. And uh, so I'm sorry, I've got to pick out one of my buddies here. All right. And they're doing good work. But the fact is, we've got, we're, I'm trying to focus on my little corner of the neighborhood. Yeah. We need gospel preaching churches, but we can't just go to churches that go out there who are just faithful to articulation of the doctrine of the gospel and just want to go out there and be preached a mission of the gospel. The connecting tissue between gospel proclamation and gospel mission is the relationship of the gospel in the local church and healthy churches. And how do we do that? Love. The way that Jesus said to do so. I love Ray Ortland's little green book by the Nine Mark series, and he talks about creating a gospel culture. And to create a gospel culture, you need gospel truth, gospel doctrine. 
You need gospel community, which is gospel love, and you need gospel mission, which is, of course, going and taking the gospel to the nations. If you don't have all three of those, you shortchange the mission of the church, and you shortchange the gospel truth. You've got to have it all. I love this church because this is something we strive for here in our, in our wonderful fellowship, do we not? So Paul calls them to judge for themselves before they get to this place of the discipline with the Lord. Look what he says there in verses 31 and 32. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, we wouldn't fall into this discipline of the Lord if we would just do this on ourselves, if we examine ourselves. But when we are judged, when we are judged by the Lord or disciplined by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the Lord. Another way of saying here is that the believer is called to gospel reflection concerning our condition as it relates to other believers. And when we do this well, we avoid having to fall under the discipline of the Lord and therefore all of the elements that come along with it. When we don't apply the go- a, a proper gospel examination we, among ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ here, we submit ourselves to the discipline of the Lord so that, why? God loves his church and he doesn't want us to fall prey to the same judgment that he has for the world. And so sometimes God will let a church die because they have forgotten their first love. But isn't it interesting when you think about Rome, when you think about Revelation chapter 2 and he gives this list of all these churches that he has an issue with? Like, I've got a problem with you people, right? That's what I have. I have Seinfeld in my head when I think about, G, when I think about John giving out Revelation chapter 2. I've got problems with you people. The very first church that he mentions he has a problem with is a church at Ephesus. And if you know anything about the list of seven churches, Ephesus was the prized child. It was the one that was, man, if you wanted some place that had Christian orthodoxy, boy, they had it but they had grown cold. They had grown cold. They had, not, they had forgotten to keep applying the, the, the reality of the gospel into their life of their church, and therefore they were faltering like the other churches around them. See, friends, sound, doctrinally sound churches can grow cold. I hope that sends shivers up your spine because we can have the confession we can open up a Bible, but if it, if it doesn't warm our hearts towards Christ, towards each other, and towards our neighbor, doc, gospel doctrine can go by the wayside. And so Paul makes his final plea. When you come together, here's his idea, here's what he wants you to see. When you come together, wait for one another. Like, go home and eat. Don't flaunt yourself in front of the rest of the church. You can do that another time. He's not saying it's a problem being, you know, more fluent. He's saying, but that's not the place for it. Don't make this a place that desecrates the name of Jesus. No, you come together. You come, you come together. You, you, you wait for one another. And when you come together, it will not be for judgment. What a wonderful promise that is to us. Brothers and sisters, if there's something between you and another brother or sister in this church, whether it be a friendship, listen, there have been times, like, sometimes, you you ever had those spats before church with your wife? You're like, man, i got to get that right before I come to the Lord, right? Um, 
And, and sometimes it's something that you can, you can put away small offenses and that's fine. But sometimes if there are offenses that continue to linger and linger and fester and fester and fester, brothers and sisters, Paul's admonition to all of us would say, get it right. Because you are showing something destructive and something different and something distorted about the name of Jesus and the love that he'd have us imbibe as his people. And so here's the final thought. As we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table this morning, here's the big question that I want us to wrestle with. Is there any relational reason for you and me to prevent ourselves from participation in the morning? A friendship on the rocks, sin towards another precious soul that you are not willing to repent of? Do you, do you look down on other members of this body or perhaps other bodies of Christ because uh, over non-gospel central issues? Do you have problems within your family or in your marriage? Can you, can you both, can all, can whatever those parties are, whichever those you choose, can we, can we come together with the fullness of joy in this morning, as we come to the table this morning? Remember, come, wait for them. Can you do that with a clean heart? And what I mean by clean heart is the ledger has been wiped away. And I just want to say this. It's not your job to wipe the ledger. Like whatever offenses I might have towards someone else or someone might have towards me, it's not our job to wipe the ledger. It's the fact that when you come here, you're saying Christ has dealt with that. Christ has dealt with this. Is that your attitude when you come to the table together as brothers and sisters in Christ this morning? That is what Paul, if not, he, I, would encourage you to abstain. For your soul, for the soul of this church, and for the glory of Jesus to the world. Yes? Let's not take it lightly. Let's not subject ourselves to the discipline of the Lord because we have superficially approached the table because it's become, it's become so familiar to us. It should never become familiar to us. And that's my heart and prayer this morning. Is may God be glorified in his church this morning as we come to this table together with renewed joy of our unity together until Jesus returns. Amen? Amen. Jesus, thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for the privilege of being your people. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of a body of Christ that reminds each other of the gospel and sharing in this wonderful meal of remembrance each week. And may Jesus, through your spirit, may your spirit do the work that needs to be done this morning as we come to this table with renewed heart, with renewed joy, with renewed hope in your kingdom to come. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.